0: computers online. Archiving,
1: 44K. Initiate sequence. T-minus
0: 30 seconds. Server connection confirmed. T-minus
1: 25 seconds.
0: Live stream for QNN 20K. T-minus 20 seconds. All lines
1: are a go. T-minus 15 seconds.
0: Right up point
1: there by T to minus 10 seconds. I
0: can't That right up front terrified. Five, four, three,
1: two. <sighs> Welcome to Black Op Radio, the voice of political conspiracy research. You're listening to Black Op Radio, the show NSA doesn't want you to hear. Now here it's your host, Leno Sanik. Control you're on the air.
2: Welcome, Mr. Reiner. Your podcast is called Who Killed JFK? It's about the assassination. It's uh, quite lengthy and... You were writing a script for this before you did the podcast, and what is the catalyst to get you interested in to do something about this?
1: Well, you know, I, I was uh, 16 when uh, the President Kennedy was assassinated, and anybody who was alive at that time will remember exactly where they were when they heard the news. And I've been uh, focused on this on and off for the last 60 years. I mean, I started... My first interest was after the Warren Commission report came out in '64. Shortly after that, I, I read uh, Mark Lane's book "Rush to Judgment," and uh, that got me interested. I was performing at the at the Hungry Eye in San Francisco, and there was a smaller room at the Hungry Eye where Mort Saul was performing. And Mort Saul, you know, was a very f- uh, famous at the time uh, political satirist, and uh, he had basically given up doing his routine he only talked about the warren commission that's his whole act was dis- discussing how flawed the the warren commission was and how it made no sense and there was you know all kinds of weird things in there and that got me more interested and then i started as the years went on i whatever whenever something would come out i'd read about it um you know and what's interesting about it, about about this uh, this whole process is that over the 60 year period you know drips and drabs of information have come out sometimes spread apart by 20 30 years and so if you're not really following it if you don't really know how those pieces fit together you just say oh well this is interesting that came out what i wanted to do after 60 years of thinking about all this was to find a way to aggregate it all put it in one place in a way that the public could understand what happened that day and why it happened. And uh, for those who didn't know anything about it, they'd learn for those who have a lot of information about it, like yourself and others, uh, hopefully it would put things in, in a, in a, in a, in a more complete perspective and maybe even reveal some new things that were, were not known. For instance, uh, paul landis who was a a secret service agent in the trail car behind the uh behind the uh kennedy's uh, limo you know found this what they called the magic bullet uh in the back seat of of kennedy's limo and that was something that came out uh while we were doing the podcast and we got him on the on the uh on the show and he explained uh what happened and how he found that bullet which Completely debunks the the single bullet magic bullet theory. Anyway, it's it's been a long process for me, and uh, like I say, I've been intimately involved in trying to understand this for 60 years. I've been to Dealey Plaza many times. I've been to the Book Depository. I've talked to forensics experts. Uh, you know, I've kind of covered the waterfront on this.
2: Right. Well, I could be more specific then. I think what I meant, people will read a book or watch the movie JFK or do something and see it, but you decided to do something more about it and that's what I was just getting at. Like, was there something that you can name, say, listen, I've decided we're going to put a script together. We've got to do something.
1: Well, I I think after so many years and in a, a, a meeting with Dick Russell who wrote A number of books on this subject. Uh, One was the man who knew too much was about a fellow named Richard Case Nagel, who was a CIA asset who uh, knew Oswald. And I met him, uh, I guess it was about five or six years ago. And we started discussing and obviously he had a lot more information of things that I didn't know about. And it started me thinking at that time, uh it's time to and this is many many years after oliver's picture and i loved oliver stone's uh, film but oliver's uh you know basically uh put a lot of ideas out there but didn't really connect the dots i mean he kind of just threw a lot of things out there to, to consider and what i thought what i would do after meeting with dick is is there a way to Put this all together so that the, that the public could understand how all this was connected. And that's what got me to start uh, thinking about it. And the first th- thought I had was to do it as a TV series, like a limited series. And I got a, um, a, a guy at Paramount who uh, was an executive named Ted Gold. He agreed to, uh, uh, to finance the development of it. And we wrote three scripts. I worked with a guy named uh, David Hoffman. I worked with Dick and with a fellow named Ken Nolan, and uh, then he got fired, and so the the project went away. And uh, then I started thinking, well, how else can we do this? And I'd never done a podcast, but I heard uh, Soledad O'Brien do a podcast called Murder on the Towpath, which was all about the mysterious death of Mary mary meyer who was married to cord meyer who was a cia agent Mm -hmm. and she was mysteriously murdered right after the warren commission report came out and she was living apart from cord meyer she was living in her uh georgetown uh, art studio she had an art studio there and the day that she was murdered uh James Angleton, who was the head of counterintelligence for the CIA, showed up at her apartment and, as a matter of fact, showed up at the same day as uh, Bill Bradley, who, uh, excuse me, uh, Ben Bradley, who was uh, the editor of the Washington Post, who was married to Mary Meyer's sister. And uh, Mary Meyer herself was having an affair with John Kennedy for a year prior to that. And they took a diary. They took Mary Meyer's diary and it never been seen since. So when hearing this podcast, and I thought it was very well done, I reached out to Soledad O'Brien and said, hey, would you be interested in doing a full uh, 10-part podcast on the assassination? Uh, And it was coming up, and the 60-year anniversary was coming up. And so that's what we decided to do, and we put it out there, and it, lo and behold, became the number one podcast for the year uh, and had you know, over 6 million downloads and all that stuff. Yeah.
2: Well, congratulations. I mean, I'm always interested in in someone doing a documentary about JFK, Bobby Kennedy, you know, those things, even if I don't subscribe to everything in that. And I'll give you a little um, uh, critique. When I first started listening to the podcast, it was, it was too soft for me. And I had the thought that for the subject matter, this is very light and... Uh, I got halfway through, and then the Soledad says, uh, okay, can you slow down? Tell me, what the hell's going on here? And then it dawned on me that this is for the novice, this is for someone who doesn't know all the facts that you have right. done. So I was going to ask you about that. How did you set this format? Because... Some people with the, and by the way, I'll tell you a, a pleasant thing that happened to me. You know, it doesn't happen all the time, but I changed my mind. I mean, I listened to the podcast twice and even go, uh-huh. and after that, I got, you know, this is, it's not bad at all. I, I, I thought it was <laughs> too light. And I, you know, don't take that the wrong way. I No, no,
1: I, no, I, I understand and I right, appreciate right. what you're saying, because right, right. W- the, the goal was to uh, explain this as best we could to people who didn't know anything about it, because... Here's the thing there are people that have been in the weeds and down the rabbit holes and steeped in this for so many years but we're dying out I mean you know we're getting older and we want people young people people who don't know much about it to get a picture of it and understand it so that hopefully uh you know the research continues
2: right because I think early on and forgive me if I've got the order wrong but uh Solodat Says something like, "Well, there's over a hundred theories of what happened," and I, I, was thinking, "Well, don't say that. Like, let's <laughs> just you know, let's talk about if you can prove what the Warren Commission got wrong, then you're left with like they completely lied. The whole thing's a fraud." And
1: right. They that it that, into it. right. That we know that that's a yeah, given. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That they did lie about it. Now, okay. The, okay. the question of a hundred theories is. There's not really a hundred theories. What there is, is the specifics, the hundred specifics of the one theory, which is it was a conspiracy and it was a conspiracy done by uh, rogue elements, hardliners from a, a number of groups. And the question of the specifics of who those people were, who was positioned where, uh, who was this shooter, that shooter? Those things are up for discussion. Yeah, yeah. And we didn't put anything in the podcast that we couldn't substantiate. Right, for right. instance, we name four of the shooters. And the reason we named those four shooters, and we believe there might have been more. Most people believe there were anywhere from four to six shooters. And my hunch is that there were probably five. But the point is, we named the four uh, assassins that we knew were in Dallas that day. If we could have known a fifth, we would have put that person in there as well.
2: Okay, that was another point I wanted to bring up. Um, just for discussion, you say the word rogue, and sometimes I get the feeling, no, these guys weren't rogue. They were moving from the top down. Do you, do you have an opinion on that, that... Um Because you do go into great detail about Alan Dulles, still in charge of things. Right. That's what makes me consider that maybe these guys weren't
1: rogue. What we describe in the podcast, and I believe this to be true, is that certainly Alan Dulles knew that this was going on. And certainly, you know, he didn't obviously didn't look the other way. I mean, I mean it did look the other way. Obviously didn't, you know, try to stop it or anything. So he knew this was happening. You know, people like James Angleton, I'm sure knew this was happening, but what we're saying is they didn't plan this. In other words, in all the discussions I've had with with uh, uh CIA operatives and agents who have done these kinds of operations, they're not done in any way from the top down. It's There's so many levels that are uh, created to uh, create plausible deniability that you may have uh, somebody who's got an assignment, we got to figure out a way to get rid of this person, that person. And then there are levels of as we discuss the the, the uh, wilderness of mirrors that are created in order for those things to happen now in in the case and that this was done in getting rid of patrice labomba and in Trujillo and a number of other extrajudicial killings but in the case of kennedy one of the things that we didn't put out there that is a theory and we didn't put it out there because we couldn't substantiate it was that that Desmond Fitzgerald who was in the CIA at the time uh, based on the idea of Operation uh, Northwoods which basically said to create a, a, a false flag operation in other words do something to a, a prominent uh, member of uh, you know a prominent uh, target, and then blame it on somebody else in order to get something done. That was the the context on which this was based. Now there is a theory that says that Desmond Fitzgerald planned. Now this is now follow this through because this is something I've thought about, and we didn't put it in there because we couldn't prove it. Desmond Fitzgerald. If his idea was to create this uh, this uh, incident in Dallas, in which somebody would shoot at President Kennedy and miss, and it could still be blamed on somebody like Oswald, an Oswald, somebody who was a communist sympathizer who. Uh, uh, they could blame uh, on Castro. They could blame it on Khrushchev. And that could give them the uh, impetus to uh, to start a, a war. Right. Now, the problem with this is, and 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 he, hear me out because this is this is really tricky, and this will be, be interesting to your listeners. Um, think about first and and what then we were saying that this was co-opted. This idea was co-opted by hardliners in other words people knew about this operation said fuck it let's just kill the guy why do we have to do um you know a a shot that misses now listen to this because it's important the first shot that was shot from the sixth floor of the school book depository missed and the reason we know it missed is because it hit a curb and a piece of concrete uh, flicked into the cheek of a a bystander named James Tague. We know that. So I'll ask you the question. What sharpshooter, what assassin misses an entire motorcade? It's crazy. It's a crazy idea. The other thing is that if you are trying to create a lone assassin idea, why would you... Have the assassin shoot through trees and a car that's moving away from you. If you're up there by yourself, and I'm, um, you know, I've been up to the sixth floor many times. If you're up there by yourself, the clear shot to Kennedy is right yeah. down Houston Street. It's a clear shot. There's no, one, there's nothing obstructing it. Why would you wait till it turns a corner? You wait till it turns a corner because you want to get it in a crossfire anyway that's another issue but the point is we didn't bring up the desmond fitzgerald idea because we couldn't substantiate it but that leads to the ideas of it being co-opted by rogue elements
2: okay right because like i like my observation is that there's, There's no, no way that Alan Dulles wouldn't have
1: known about this. No, he would he would have you know, known And had we talk about that in the in right. the podcast. I, I know, I, I, we say he's sitting at the farm, which is in uh you know, is in Virginia near the CIA. Yeah, 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 yeah.
2: So um, that's I want to give you a plug right now then. You know, we're at the halfway point, is that I did enjoy the podcast, even though I know an awful lot about it. The first bit, it kind of caught me off guard, and I thought it was a bit light for the... Uh, because I, I'm always amazed that people aren't in front of the White House with pitchforks and torches. Like, if, <laughs> if you look into it, and you say, what what have you guys done? You know, yeah, so yeah. anyway, sometimes I think that, like with your research, or you know an awful lot about it, that that might have been something really piqued your imagination. And, and for me, it was a Commission Exhibit 399, when you kind of gloss over, you go, wait a minute there's no yeah. way. It just and that's kind of what what was the catalyst for me to look into things further, right? Um,
1: well, that's interesting because 399 is the very bullet that Paul Landis, the secret service agent that was in the trail car behind Kennedy, that's the the bullet he found. And he found it not on a stretcher, uh, you know, it wasn't found on a stretcher, you know, uh, the the Connolly stretcher in Parkland. It was he found it in the back seat of the car. So, clearly that bullet and if you look at you know the autopsy pictures you see that there's a a bullet hole in kennedy's back about six to eight inches below his neck and that bu- that hole it never penetrated it just kind of made it an indentation and they put you know the uh, examining doctors put their finger in there and they didn't find anything and a sense obviously that must have been a bullet that must have been the bullet that that hit and fell in the back seat of the car and then paul landis took that bullet and placed it near Kennedy's body. Yeah.
2: yeah. Okay, I have another question. I'm going to try to check these off quick. What is, for you, what was the most uncomfortable fact that you've dug up so far in your research?
1: The most, well, it, 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 I wouldn't say the most uncomfortable, but the one that uh, was eye well, there's so many things that are eye-opening, but one of the things that hit me hard was learning that the liaison between the House Select Committee on Assassinations, which is the reinvestigation of the assassination, and the CIA. The liaison between those was a guy named George Joanides, who, uh, it turned out, was a former CIA agent who had uh, run the program, in the Miami. special ops program that in Miami, that, uh, that uh, was the program that spawned Oswald. So, That was a a big eye-opener for me, and we actually interviewed uh, uh, Robert Blakey, who was the lead counsel on the committee, and uh, he said he didn't know at the time. He said, had he known then what he knows now, he was furious about it, and said, I would have put that guy on the stand. He was the answer to a lot of our questions.
2: Yeah, I was going to ask you what you thought of the HSCA, because then it's been totally co-opted. Once you realized this, and uh i mean luckily it it came out but, but, well um, yeah,
1: it was co-opted as the Warren commission was co- opted the Warren commission was co-opted by Alan Dulles. And we know that because we have a conversation between uh, J- uh lbj and uh J Edgar Hoover, where they talk about keeping a lid on this thing and putting Alan Dulles in place to uh uh, you know, basically keep any information that would, uh, you know, impl- implicate the CIA into the investigation.
2: Yeah, uh, I was speaking to uh, Fletcher Prouty and he told me when he was going to the HSCA to testify, he saw right on the board George George Joanides and he said, oh my God, these guys have no idea how, you know, that's like asking the Fox to investigate. To who guard the hen, the hen house, house yeah, right? yeah, and so absolutely. He, al- he also called me when he went to the... Um, spoke at the A R B and he called me and said it's the same thing. And do you have any uh, thoughts on the A R B, or I was going to ask you what you thought on that as well?
1: Well, the AARB uh, uncovered some very interesting good things too. Uh, They didn't get to all of it because, uh, you know, there are certain documents that have been withheld and uh, they're still being withheld.
2: Yeah, but we find out that the head's uh, in that, they all believed the lone nut. They all believed Lee Oswald did it. So there's a few people.
1: Well, no, Doug Horn didn't believe that.
2: No, I know Doug Horn, but his, his bosses, people yeah, higher up yeah, than him. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, and, oh yeah, hats off to Doug well, Horn. Well, Doug
1: Horn, I mean, the ARB uh, was able to uh, uncover the idea that uh, how botched the autopsy was yeah. and how, you know, the initial uh, report was burned. You know, all of those things came out uh, during the AARB investigation. So those are new things. Those are all new things. So each investigation has uh, advanced, uh, you know, advanced things, but nobody's gotten the complete picture.
2: Right. Now, I had another question, since you had used several people in your do- uh, documentary podcast. Yeah. Um, who are the researchers that you have influenced you?
1: Well, the ones we have in there, I mean, Jefferson Morley, and uh, and Doug Horn, and Dick Russell, and uh, Doug Mantic, and... Uh, David uh, Mantic. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, David Mantic. Um, you know, all the people that we have on the podcast, they've all been influences, Right. Um, and also Cyril
2: Wecht. Right. Uh, I was going to ask you about John Armstrong, if you have any comments. I mean... He thinks John
1: Armstrong, gonna- by the way, I think he's brilliant, that guy. I've met with him. He came to my house and um uh you know he has the whole thing about the two Oswalds, right. which is completely compelling. I mean it is totally compelling. But to go to to explain how the two Oswalds would work, yeah. because it's well known that in a lot of these operations, they have dou- they use doubles a lot of times, and that's part of the obfuscation and the wilderness of mirrors. They do this yeah. in in ma- in many operations, but to explain all that, you know, it, it would take, take up so while, much yeah. real estate to explain that, and it also might get people who are learning about this for the first time. I didn't want anything in the podcast that would people would go, oh. You know, and yeah, discount yeah. the whole right. thing.
2: Well, that that's a a common trait I find for myself that I'll agree with researchers to like eighty eight percent. they'll say something I don't quite agree with it. And when you look into John's work about um, impostors, people using the name, how can someone be in you know in Dallas and then in New Orleans at the same time? Or right. Who right. went to Mexico City? You right, know, right. There's there's actually it's just interesting how much he has dug up but I'm not sure I always subscribe to the, they're both Harvey and Lee, and, and so, but um,
1: Well, I mean, I, I, like d- I don't know either, but yeah, yeah. I do know that somebody looked, who either was, or yeah, yeah. looked a heck of a lot like yeah. Lee Harvey Oswald was yeah, yeah. in Mexico City We yeah. know that, and he might have been there twice but we know he was there one time because there's a lot of people that uh, that identified him
2: Yeah, or who was in the balcony and uh, okay, good. So I just wanted to ask you about researchers that you uh, that you liked. I was going to ask you for a few names, and you already mentioned that you did like Oliver Stone's film. I did. Yeah, you enjoyed that. I okay. did
1: like it because what it did is it opened the door for the first time. I mean, there was all these, you know, are many books written, but there's something about a film, a Hollywood film, that reaches the public in a much bigger way. So he really opened the floodgates and, get, by the way, gave, way uh, gave birth to the JFK Records Act and also the AARB. So these things came out of it.
2: Okay, very good. I have a couple of the names maybe you want to comment at all. So we did mention Alan Dulles. It just, If you had to summarize it, do you think he was involved? Do you think that, that it, it couldn't have been that he
1: didn't know? I think he did know. Just like I said, I think he did know. I don't know if he was he was in my in my opinion, he was not the planner. He did not plan this. Right. Right. But I do think he was aware of it.
2: Yeah. Uh, I think you mentioned William Atwood. Is that correct? On uh, Kennedy had on his desk. We've got to check with Atwood. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Before that, do you have any? Was he the editor of Look magazine as well?
1: I, you know I, that one is escaping me right now. I'm, I'm it's escaping. No, no, I'm I know, not. I know. He wanted to check with him because he was back channeling uh, at the time to Khrushchev and to Castro, and this was uh, his one of the con- one of the connections he had in those back channels. So I think that's what he wanted. He wanted to check on.
2: Right. Okay. You had, uh, I think it was interest some phone numbers that you were tracking down. And I, not for any particular reason, but you didn't really go into Jim Garrison in this. And I guess Oliver Stone and other people have really gone through that, though. But I recall a letter that I had that Jim Garrison had sent to Fletcher Prouty that he said that David Ferry knew his phone was tapped. So he went to his lawyer's office and they found that there was several phone calls to the Pentagon and would probably know about any of these phone numbers and who he could identify, and um, I found that of great interest. Uh, if you haven't seen it, I'll I'll email it to you, or to your assistant, Yeah. because he, okay. Fletcher kept his Rolodex, and he has. He said, in case it comes up in the future, here's all the phone numbers of the people that worked there,
1: which yeah, is yeah, uh, yeah.
2: groundbreaking. We'll, well, we'll, well,
1: well, well, David Ferry's an interesting character, because not only was he in the Civil Air Patrol with Oswald, yeah, yeah. but... Not many people know, or you probably know, that when uh, Carlos Marcello was deported, uh, Robert Kennedy, uh, the Attorney General, had him deported uh, and dropped in the jungle of Guatemala. (laughs) He was flown back to New Orleans by David Ferry, which is an interesting little thing.
2: Well, you know, when people ask me, what happened to JFK? I uh, the easy answer. I say, look, he was removed by his enemies. If you want to know more, you've got to study who his enemies were. Right. And uh, I think that your podcast—that's what
1: we try to do. We should right, right. who are who. You you approach it like a like a uh uh, you know, like a, a, a crime investigation. Who are the suspects? Who had the motive? Who wanted him dead? And then you look at forensics, and and when you do that, you see it's the Cuban exiles. It's the mob. It's you know members of the you know hardliners and in the intelligence and military uh, industrial complex. These are the people that wanted him gone.
2: Well, as I say, I recommend this, and, and the format threw me off a little bit because I thought now on the second, and I urge people to, to listen to it. That you know when I saw that O'Brien oh, sounded like she didn't know anything about it, and then that she was didn't. your that she was didn't. your. You know, your format where you set that That up, was. Maybe. The
1: idea was that right, she right. was going to learn along with the public.
2: All right. Okay, well, thank you very much. Those are the questions I had for you today. Congratulations. I like, even if I agree or disagree, anybody doing any research, writing a book, documentary, podcast, I'm interested in. So... Thank you for your effort, and it sounds like you know. You read between the lines. The people you're talking about, you do know an awful lot about this. You've spent a long time researching.
1: I I more more than you want to know.
2: <laughs> well, okay. Yeah. Um. Okay, we'll leave it there. Anything else you, you want no, to plug it, on the book? Is there, is there a website or anything that you uh, is there a part? Well, you of you, you can
1: you can you can pick up the podcast. Uh, yeah, it's we did it for iHeartRadio, but it's on any place you can get your podcast. And uh, stay tuned. We we're in the process of trying to see if we can uh, get a book publisher to uh, to do a book that will be more expansive than than what the podcast is.
2: All right. Thank you very much, then, for sharing your time today.
1: Thanks, Len. Thanks for having me. Okay. 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 Bye.
2: Bye.
1: You're listening to Black Op Radio.
2: Hello everyone. Welcome to another episode of Black Op Radio. This is your host Len Osanic. Today we are speaking to author, researcher Ray McGinnis from Vancouver, Canada. Good evening, Ray.
0: Hey, good to speak with you, Len.
2: Yeah, fellow Canadian and we have an interest in some Canadian news so that's what we're going to talk about in this segment. There was, I think everyone's heard about the trucker convoy and what happened and uh, our Prime Minister kind of shut it down and then the froze people's bank accounts and invoked some legislation just to give the RCMP these unprecedented powers. There was a court case in which lawyers took the government to court and a couple of days ago they won. They said it was unconstitutional what the government did and I wanted to get your reaction and input on it because you've studied it a little more in depth than me. You actually went to Ottawa, our nation's capital, when they had uh, some hearings. I think it was about a year ago and you sat in on those and, and gave us a report last year. But um, welcome to the show, and I turn it over to you.
0: Yeah, well, it's, it's, <laughs> we're living in interesting times, yes. The, uh, the protests back in that uh, started around the weekend of the 22nd, 23rd of January of 2022. Trucks primarily and other vehicles, uh, some farm equipment uh, in different places, started to roll from the west coast of Canada and the, and the Atlantic coast. Uh, making their way uh, by the 28th, and most of them arriving by the 29th of January 2022 to protest the vaccine mandates. Specifically, the trigger to all of this was a new ruling that if, if a truck entered Canada, that the truck driver must be vaccinated. And there had been a health committee of parliament meeting in the month of January 2022, And uh, the health minister, Duclos, and the uh, federal uh, public health agency uh, staffer, Dr. Theresa Tam, were asked, frankly, do you have any evidence to suggest that truck drivers driving in their cabs alone are spreading COVID-19? And both of them said that they had absolutely no data to suggest that truck drivers were spreading the virus. Nonetheless, The government doubled down and insisted that that truck drivers entering Canada must be vaccinated. Now, trucking associations were up in arms about this, foremost because, I mean, there was a similar kind of attempt by the Biden administration, but that failed because of a Supreme Court decision that knocked it down in January of 2022. And across the world, trucking associations and truck drivers were driving, you know, into, into Mexico, all the way down through Central America, to the tip of Chile and Argentina, all across Asia. I don't know about whether China had any, possibly China had some entry issues, but, but I can read that people were going back and forth between Cambodia and, and Thailand and so forth, and all across Africa and, and, and Europe. Despite whatever the particular rubric of pandemic measures were in a given, say, European country truck drivers were given free rein to drive across borders because of security of the supply chain and the health of the economy. And so the trucking associations were saying, is there something that the government of Canada thinks is special about the kind of trucks we drive that makes it makes it dangerous? Or is there something about the virus about COVID-19 in the nation of Canada that uniquely makes it different than if you have a, a truck driver driving you know, across the uh, bulgarian romanian border. Well, no. No and no and no. Well, pardon me for one second,
2: and correct me if I'm wrong, but I thought one of the major things was was Canadian truck drivers going into America, then when they were coming back, they would have to isolate for two weeks.
0: That was also part of it. Right. So
2: they're saying, you know, I don't mind being tested at the border, but if I don't have it, why... Why? this isn't going to work. I can't be out of work for two weeks for nothing.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so you have a government who, uh, you know, with the senior health uh, officer, Dr. Theresa Tam, and the health minister, Duclos, both saying we have no data at all to suggest anywhere that there's any chance that the truck drivers are spreading COVID, and yet they make this a hill to die on. And, and what was happening during the, uh, the protests Volunteer leaders of the convoy in Ottawa had reached an agreement with the city of Ottawa to begin to to de-escalate things, to remove move trucks and other protest vehicles from the downtown area, you know, with police approval. and And they had like 123 trucks uh, that were being moved out of residential areas plus another 104 vehicles, if I'm right, by noon, on the 14th of February 2022. And it seems, from, from what, what I can tell, that the, the window of opportunity for the Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, to take a stand and say, look at how tough and strong I am, was fast diminishing. Because now you have the city of Ottawa, senior staff, Steve Kanellakos, Kim Ayat, and others, cooperating with the truck drivers, taking photos of every single license plate of every truck that's leaving Ottawa, which is what they're all hoping for. Let's, let's move vehicles out of the city. Instead of uh, letting that continue, the crestfallen uh, Steve Cantalacos, city manager of, in the city of Ottawa, was really sorrowful on the 15th and 16th of February that he couldn't believe that the federal government had stopped the movement of trucks out of the city. The government wanted a showdown and they got one in a spectacular fashion. And now we have, you know, and then there was the uh, public order emergency commission that ran for six weeks of which I sat through one week uh, of it in November of 2022. And, uh, you know, all of the testimony of the 76 witnesses, all of the senior police and intelligence officials corroborated the story about no violence, The the people who, You know, in the news, uh, you've got Tamara Leach, you know, maybe the poster woman of of the uh, convoy uh, volunteer leadership. She's not being charged with violence. She's simply on a mischief charge. I mean, it would be really great for the anyway. It's just it's just, uh, it's a house of cards. And thankfully, there was this judicial review. And I want to talk about the Emergencies Act legislation, which replaced the War Measures Act, the War Measures Act of 1914, which was used in World War II to uh, apprehend all kinds of Japanese Canadians and their uh, their possessions and send Japanese Canadians off into internment camps. And that's a sorry story in, in Canadian history. And then the FLQ crisis in 1970, where the prime minister's father decided to invoke the War Measures Act to deal with the the FLQ, who had kidnapped several politicians, murdered one, the other was still kidnapped. Even that was seen in, 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 in hindsight as overreach. Uh, the McDonald Commission met from 1977 to 1981 recommending not a change in the name of the War Measures Act, but to change you know, the legislation to something that resembles what the Emergencies Act became. I mean, in, in the 1970s, it was found out the McDonald Commission really only happened accidentally because there was a, an RCMP officer in the mid-1970s who was involved in a, in a charge regarding illegal activity. And in their defense, they complained that, well, hey, uh, I was involved with RCMP activities uh, during the FLQ crisis, so we did the same thing then, so why should I be brought up on a different charge now? in Quebec, given that what I did back with the FLQ crisis was all hunky-dory. And then they said, whoa, <laughs> we better have an investigation into what happened with, uh, with the RCMP in Quebec, you know, burning buildings, I mean, burning a barn, blaming it on the FLQ, going into, um, you know, undercover RCMP, going into FLQ cell groups, which I don't mind them doing, uh, but then uh, disheartened FLQ members would leave the group but the FL some of these FLQ cell groups remained intact, peopled entirely by undercover RCMP officers that continued to issue scary press releases to frighten the, the yeah, population. Yeah, like agent
2: provocateurs.
0: <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, if something's hit the fan, I mean, go ahead and deal with it, but don't create stuff out of nothing. So then the War Measures Act was amended, uh, and then finally they decided to change the name of it from the War Measures Act to the Emergencies Act in 1984 legislation, which finally got passed by the Mulroney government in 1988. And I want to mention, too, that the 1984 landslide victory of the Conservatives under Brian Mulroney happened in part because of great dis-ease on the part of the Quebec population with the emergence of what was coming out in the McDonald Commission, that you know that came out, you know, in nineteen eighty one regarding the skullduggery of the RCMP. And Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau, when the McDowell Commission was, you know, tabled before Parliament in nineteen eighty one, decided not to really look at that commission. <laughs> so it's like, you know, the best, you know, this is not doesn't look good for Trudeau's government. Trudeau Sr., and so he decided not to touch the McDonald Commission at all. But thankfully, uh, they went ahead. And one of the things that happened in the the wording of the new Emergencies Act legislation, the initial legislation said that Cabinet, uh, the Cabinet in the future, would only need to be, quote, of the opinion that an emergency exists in order to declare the Emergencies Act. However, that legislation was amended to say that the cabinet needs to be required to prove that there are, quote, reasonable grounds for such a decision. And in that in that change of the wording in in the in the Hansard of, of Parliament, it makes it clear that 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 Parliament understood back in the 1980s that what they expected was in the future, should a future government invoke the Emergencies Act, that there should be a judicial review in order for precedent to be set in the future, that there should be case law to establish some sort of corralling overreach on the part of the executive. The governments can't just invoke the Emergencies Act because they, quote, feel that there's an emergency and then decide that after the emergency is over that it's moot and no one has to discuss it, which is what this government has argued vigorously that there should not have been a judicial review at all of their actions of February of 2022. And they said there should be no, uh, no judicial review because uh, we revoked the Emergencies Act on the 23rd of February 2022. So it's over. There's no need for any future discussion or, or consideration of what happened. But the court, the federal court, thankfully disagreed and went ahead and wrote their decision.
2: Yeah, Christy Freeland and Justin Trudeau. Uh, whenever they speak, it's just you can't really believe that that you know you guys are so out of touch. I just I'm dumbfounded, you know, just. Yeah,
0: I mean, you know, the, I mean, the you know, I mean, citing a Supreme Court of Canada decision in 2012, Justice Richard Mosley wrote, "It is a fundamental principle." of the rule of law that state power must be exercised in accordance with the law. The corollary of this constitutionally protected principle is that superior courts may be called upon to review whether particular exercises of state power fall outside the law. And this, is, this function of judicial review is why it's necessary for the courts to weigh in on matters of whether or not Parliament has exceeded its, its authority. It exceeded its authority within the Emergencies Act legislation itself in several sections because it's clear in the legislation that even if there is a temporary reason to invoke a national uh, the Emergencies Act in response to a national emergency, the constitutional rights and freedoms must be protected. And what we have instead was the government went ahead and invoked the Emergencies Act, and then went went about and froze you know hundreds I think 300 or so people's bank accounts and, and assets, credit cards, insurance uh, policies, and so on. And it, it's clear from uh, evidence presented before the, before the court uh, from senior RCMP officers that the identification of different individuals to freeze bank accounts was completely ad hoc. There was no standard whatsoever in, in which to determine whether or not you would freeze this person or that person's bank account. And and that, I mean, is is even more astonishing. I mean, it's just like there, there was no, you know, I mean, you, you'd have, you know, I mean, you might think, oh, well, all the people whose bank accounts were frozen were truck drivers that had vehicles sitting in front of Parliament Hill, perhaps. No, not at all. <laughs> and you had people who were hundreds of miles away from Parliament Hill. Who uh, who had nothing to do with the protest? Who you know? Who are included in the people whose bank accounts were suddenly frozen? Yeah,
2: they they donated twenty dollars or fifty dollars or something like that. Yeah, yeah, uh,
0: you know, and probably, and probably they like they, they donated and then the, and then and then the government disallowed the donations to go ahead and so in fact they probably donated and then give send go returned the money but not with yeah
2: in the beginning they weren't even gonna they were just going to shut it down right and then i think uh, somebody in america said no you've got to refund the money then you can't just keep it but anyway the thing that bothered me the most i think is that people went there to get some kind of representation and said come and meet with us the prime minister never did he didn't send the deputy prime minister. He did, He just, he was on vacation or then he had COVID or he was unavailable. If he had just said, okay, we'll meet with you. We, we have to do something. Okay, you've, you've made a strenuous point. We've got to do something. Even if they said, look, our, our hands are tied. We can't do this. Or we can't do that. But th- they refused
0: to meet with them. It's a very interesting, it requires what's required in order for this kind of hysteria. To be sustained so that people, you know, like the, the government, when the government and the media, the big, the big mainstream media team up together like a wrestling tag team against the citizens of the, of the country and put some group or individual in its, in its crosshairs and then double down and triple down and throw everything but the kitchen sink at them and sustain uh, a whole bunch of accusations the only way that ordinary citizens can respond, I mean, you can do one of two things. You can become agitated and angry and frightened and anxious all at once uh, because there are suggestions that the truck drivers have, have have guns and weapons in their vehicles in Ottawa and are going to try and start, start shooting parliamentarians. I mean, there were... Justin Ling of the CBC and other people were were saying that the truck drivers had come, I mean, literally to lynch, like to hang politicians from trees, uh, you know, in, in downtown Ottawa, uh, or or that or that the uh, the only reason the truck drivers were going to. Uh, to Ottawa was because Vladimir Putin himself had suggested that this uh, would be uh, a good thing for the truck drivers to do, or that that all the people who were doing this were actually uh, Trump supporters and actually Americans you know as as hardly hardly canadian involved in the protest uh, and there's like there were so many crazy accusations that the truck drivers had come all the way from uh, the atlantic and pacific coasts in order to to set uh, residential downtown apartments on fire uh, and and there was just you know or or to or to uh, or to make bomb threats against children's hospitals and one after another i mean all of these uh, this cavalcade of, of hysteria and, and false accusations was, was received uh, without scrutiny entirely by, by the official press uh, that, that gave one, one bow and curtsy after the next to every single statement by Trudeau and Christopher Freeland, the deputy prime minister, and Marco Mendocino, the public safety minister, on down the line, treated every allegation as, as the gospel truth. And then what happened over the following many months was that every single one of these allegations were seen to be wholly without foundation. You would have the Ottawa Police Service going before a, a public safety committee of, of parliament in late March of 2022, uh, conceding, yes, well, none of the truckers had guns in their vehicles in Ottawa. Or, or the, um, the two people who clumsily tried to commit arson in a downtown apartment block, uh, were a couple of ne'er do wells very familiar to the Ottawa Police Service who had absolutely nothing to do with the protests. And on and on it goes. I mean, I, I, mean, I watched um, uh, you know, Rupa Subramania, who has been a reporter for variously for the Wall Street Journal and the National Post and uh, Counter Signal, um, is, uh, is somebody who is uh, an Indo Canadian woman of color. She lives five-minute walk from the downtown protest, and she had all this stuff in her head. She, she talks about you know all these impressions of all these terrible people coming to Ottawa, and so she just wanted to go and see. And she spent three weeks there interviewing over 150 people. Uh, not once did she, as a woman of color, feel uh, she was on the receiving end of any racism or misogyny. Uh, she spoke to many, many people, including many women and many People of color, uh, you know, spoke to uh, uh, Indigenous Canadians, uh, Sikh Canadians, Korean Canadians, on down the line. You know, I mean, I, I spoke to, when I was in, in Ottawa. I, I had one brief conversation with a with an Indigenous woman who was in Ottawa at the time, and I said, like, what is it like for you? You know, like you were protesting. What is it like to what it, what happens to you when you hear that self-described progressive and liberal Canadians are depicting the protesters from start to finish as white supremacists? How does that feel like as a as an indigenous woman who is protesting there? And she said, you know, she finds it astonishing that all kinds of liberals and progressives in our country can circle the wagons and and rightly defend the need for, for, for deep reflection on the part of Canadians about what the Truth and Reconciliation Commission revealed. And yet, when an Indigenous person goes to Ottawa to protest a Liberal government's policies regarding how to manage the pandemic, suddenly Indigenous protesters are disappeared and they are thrown in and depicted as white supremacists. And it's just astonishing uh, how we pick and choose when we want to see an indigenous person or not, or an Afro-Canadian person or not. I mean, I saw Rodney Palmer, who was a former uh, 20-year veteran journalist with both the CBC, CTV and the Globe and Mail. He was in Ottawa. He went into a number of different interviews with a variety of truck drivers who all happened to be one, two, three in a row. All obviously Asian-Canadian, Afro-Canadian Indo-Canadian truck drivers, and he asked them, "How do you feel about uh, being, uh, you know, knowing that the CBC is describing all the protesters here as white supremacists and racist?" It's just, it's just for for these for these visibly ethnic minority truck drivers to hear this, uh, you know, on the national broadcaster is just so insulting and dishonest, and yet the fiction persists to this day.
2: Luckily, a lot of people down there did live streaming, so you could see what was going on almost twenty-four hours a day. And several times, I, I clicked on it to kind of witness this riot, this taking over of Parliament, and that, just to see people peacefully there. People even they brought their children with them. to said, "Listen, this is part of history. We want you want you to see this." And then, on the news, they're saying or they're using uh, ch- their children as human shields and things like that. It's just, um, it's disgusting.
0: So the yeah, court let me, ruling. Let, 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 me just, let me just add one, one thing about that. Like, it, it is clear that, that when, if the media wants to, or if politicians in our country want to, any activity, no matter how peaceful, parents sitting in a vehicle with their children, can suddenly be be described as, as hu- children with human shields and depicted as, as if what's going on in ottawa was a syrian civil war i mean you know like you know let, let's make it scary for children to be skipping rope I, I don't know i mean there's nothing under the sun that cannot be then reframed and used to scare people you know, and so i think i think that we're at a at a very vulnerable place in our democracy when, when people's uh, emotions can be, can be used to hijack any ability to scrutinize uh, what the government's doing. So, yeah, on, on to the next thing.
2: <laughs> right. So I guess in this, you write about it. I'm going to make links to some of the things you provided me. You wrote an article for uh, Troy Media, and it's a landmark ruling that declares the, the Emergencies Act illegal. And now, embarrassingly, the government is saying, well, we're we're going to appeal this, right? You know, we can't let this stand. But, you know, they took it to court and they said, no, what you did, really, you you lied to the people. This was not an emergency.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, and I think that the government is going to have a bit of a hill to climb to get an appeals court. I mean, some people have said, well, I don't know, the, the appeals court, there are 15 justices I don't think that all 15 of them have to be part of the discussion. Maybe they do a lottery, and three out of 15 are chosen to to to, to take a particular case. But the judge Richard Mosley uh, is was appointed by a liberal government, and yet he's made this uh, this ruling. And he all interestingly too, Mosley describes in his in his judgment that that he was predisposed initially to side with the government, given. The media reportage, but when he looked into the whole matter, he saw that that indeed uh, the uh, the government had 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 uh, acted illegally, and uh, you know the violation of the of, of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. So it, it's a very significant. It's not just a matter of saying that the government was wrong to invoke the Emergencies Act, but it violated. The Constitution Act of 1982; it violated the Charter of Rights in several sections, as well as several sections of the Mercies Act. So, it's going to be pretty hard for an appeals court to overturn this. Um, and I mean, the government can say, you know, I mean, it's interesting too. David Lametti, who was the Attorney General, who's involved in in arguing all the way that, oh no, the, the, the federal court should not rule on this because it's moot. His response to the judicial ruling within uh, 48 hours, was to uh, resign from Parliament. <laughs> so now he's gone off to a private law firm. So, it's, What do
2: you think that means?
0: Well, I, I think, <laughs> I think it, it, it means that somewhere deep inside of him, I think he knows that his, uh, his legacy is going to be tarnished forever, given his role as the attorney general it's a stain on on his contribution um, to that yeah his contribution to that is 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 not as is, is, is a significant contribution and i mean the whole the whole argument the government continues on this particular case and they have so far successfully on the vaccine travel mandate case found courts that will rule that yeah since the travel mandates that were imposed requiring vaccination of citizens to fly domestically and internationally is over been suspended that now it's moot so we don't have to discuss this but that kind of that kind of 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 legal ruling is bad law because anyone who knows when a crime is committed by the time you get to court the crime will have been in the past if you rule that because something is moot because it's over I mean, I, 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 it's not very good news for people in the future who are small, small business persons who end up being robbed. Uh, a, a, a suspect in robbery could, could argue, "Hey, you know, even if I did rob that store of the following merchandise, uh, it's moot because that's in the past." <laughs> I mean, it, you know, I, I think it's terrible um, legal precedent to argue moot just because something is over. Uh, we we need to reflect on things in the past. We can, well, we can. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The thing that catches
2: my interest is that say what you want, pick aside on vaccinations themselves. But if you if you find out that this was forced on people the way that Trudeau was saying, you will not get on a, a train, you will not fly, you will not travel, you won't be able to go into grocery stores unless you're vaccinated. And then later people say, well, we have this vaccination hesitancy. Can you prove that it actually works? And then second, can you prove that it's not harmful? And as this is going on now, there doesn't seem to be any real proof that the vaccine did what they said it was going to do. Now, if it's a a gigantic, uh, I can't even think of a word, but humongous money grab by Pfizer. I mean, if they, you know, one report I I saw that said they only tested the, the boosters on eight mice and then they okayed it. Eight well, I mean, it's almost yeah. science fiction. You go and you release that, but then you demanded it. So then the people who had their gyms and restaurants shut down and that feel like we're, we're going to take the government to court and we can't take Pfizer to court. We can't take anybody else. So first of all, they lied about how effective the thing was. And then that's a whole other debate, right? And you could have a discussion. Maybe it was 50% good. Maybe it saved some people. The claim is that, if you had the vaccination, at least you didn't end up in the hospital.
0: Yeah, well, you know, th- this is one of the other other things that's come. I mean, I, I wondered for some time, of course, in the summer, early, early August of 2021 in the United States, the Center for Disease Control Director, Dr. Rochelle Walensky, conceded on a, on a CNN interview with Wolf Blitzer that the vaccine, in fact, uh, did not prevent transmission and did not prevent infection and uh, i think it was in either in 2022 or 2023 the center for disease control had a conference with several hundred of their own employees all vaccinated and there was a huge outbreak of uh of COVID 19 among several hundred of them which should cause people to question how effective a vaccine is if if you have a huge spread of of the virus that you're supposed to be protected from and 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 more shocking counter signal came out with a story uh on the 15th of November of this last year, uh, where they uh, finally were able to get through a Freedom of Information Act in Canada, uh, the uh, actual management and supply agreement between Pfizer and the government of Canada of October 26, 2020. And in that agreement, it makes clear that in the purchaser agreement section on page 18, that the government understood That Pfizer was telling them that they really had no idea what the uh, you know what the you know if there would be any emerging safety signals you know what what the what the you know what possible harms there would be. It's there in black and white. And so from October 26, 2020, the government uh, running around saying proven safe and effective was lying to the Canadian public because in their own agreement with them with the manufacturer, they knew the manufacturer was telling them we don't know. it's, it's just stunning.
2: yeah it is and the, the downside to that is that usually they, these are four to ten year studies that they need to take on a, on a group of people like so you can't just introduce some kind of drug and then uh, say there's no side effects, but in this case they did.
0: yeah so it's it's a very sorry chapter in, in well of course this is a, affected many many nations, but it's a sorry chapter in Canadian sort of a, a devolving Canadian democracy. I mean, this is the kind of story regarding the release of that of that manufacturing supply agreement. that should have been a front page story in every paper across the country, and a headline news story in the CBC, CTV and Global for days, and not a peep.
2: And another thing of interest is that I've noticed on these major media, uh, like you say, Global and CTV and CBC, that whenever they post some stories here that are even neutral, just, you know, maybe 50%, they all turn the comments off. So lots of people have said, no, this you're totally lying. This is totally wrong. You're misrepresenting. And when you're a news station, you have to turn comments off. You know, you're on the wrong side.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So it's going to be very interesting with going forward as people kind of dribbling out, but as more and more people find out how I mean, like the story about the like the vaccine travel mandates. This case with Brian Peckford and Maxine Bernier and Carl Harrison and Sean Rickard, I think, is now going to a, a, a new a new level. Um, I mean, all of the discovery of six weeks of testimony interviewing, uh, I think, a couple of dozen of senior public health bureaucrats. The bureaucrats, it was it was so interesting because the government position was people have to show proof of vaccination to board, board a, a plane. But in all of the, the email and text correspondence between Transport Canada committees and, uh, and public health, like they would have a list of things that they might suggest that uh, Transport Canada should do. If possible, social distancing in the departure lounge, maybe do a, a rapid test ahead of time and so on. But interestingly, there was no requirement being suggested by Public Health to Transport Canada for a vaccine passport. And so I think Dr. either Celia Lorenko or Dr. Charlotte Waddell were asked about this in the, in the discovery of the cross-examination. Why, why did you not, not suggest to Transport Canada that you uh, recommend that they, everybody rec- have, uh, have a vaccine passport? And they said that there was no epidemiological basis to make that suggestion. So I think that the government maybe is leaning on a couple of judges. I don't know. But I think that the whole argument about making the vaccine travel mandate lawsuit, you know, declaring it moot so there cannot be a case that goes forward and is heard by a judge is because the government can't afford to have this kind of discovery and this kind of testimony brought forward in a court of in a court of law because it's so damning uh, to undermining the government's whole case for insisting on vaccine travel mandates in the first place
2: okay well uh, that's the latest at um, uh, your articles january twenty fourth but the court ruling has um, overturned uh, they found trudeau's government illegal that act
0: ultravirus <laughs> yeah <laughs> virus whatever you have you say that in- yeah, so that's, that's, that's one of them. <laughs> and
2: there's a couple more things we want to talk about then as well.
0: Yes, we do. There is an ongoing lawsuit, civil lawsuits. I think, with um, Tamara Leach and Chris Barber were two of the volunteer leaders with the Freedom Convoy, and they are charged with mischief and counseling mischief. Tamara Leach didn't have a truck, uh, by the way, but, but nonetheless, a mischief charge in Canadian courts... Normally lasts about half a day in a courtroom, half a day. This particular court case has cost probably over maybe a million dollars for each of the, uh, of the defendants. And it's gone on 35 days. Uh, the court is, is, is still trying to find between the prosecution and defense to identify more court dates uh, this spring. It, it, this, this, this thing may go on until the fall of this year. It's just astonishing.
2: What typically is a mischief charge? I mean, I'm thinking of kicking over someone's mailbox or...
0: Yeah, you've got a bunch of uh, uh, grade 11 boys in, in the summer kicking over a couple of garbage cans in the alleyway or, or you know, some just graffiti. Just like the word
2: implies, mischief. Gra- 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 graffiti. Not a, not a heavy criminal act, but... Uh... No,
0: no. You know, so, I mean, they, they're not being charged with violence. They're not being charged with sedition. They're not being charged with a plot to overthrow the government. They're being charged with mischief. And when the Crown, in this case, I I went and I sat through two days of the uh, proceedings in late November, early December of 2023 in Ottawa. And you have uh, the Crown bringing forth uh, witnesses, different police officers, the Ottawa Police Service, uh, showing video in the courtroom and, and and what you'll have is they'll they'll bring forward all kinds of evidence that turns out to be exculpatory proving that the defendants are not guilty of what they're being charged you'll have a, a video of of protesters holding hands and and singing oh canada and then police looking menacing and threatening <laughs> So, so it's you know one thing after the next. Uh, you have all kinds of uh, of text messages uh, between, I mean, the the, uh, the police officers uh, and Tamara Leach or Chris Barber, showing cooperation and collaboration, follow through. The po- a police officer wants Tamara Leach or Chris Barber to do this, that, or the other regarding the placement of trucks and vehicles. And they go ahead and do exactly what they're told to do by the police, uh, and you've got this kind of thing being entered by the by the Crown Prosecution, which only simply proves that the uh, that these that these volunteer convoy leaders were completely obedient in relationship to all of their interactions with the police. So it, it's just astonishing, and and it seems that the Crown's not even not even clear what what's you know I mean. A, a, a more, a more effective prosecution would not keep bringing forth evidence that that shows how law-abiding the defendants have been.
2: Okay. The next thing is um, the RCMP doing an arrest of uh, David Menzies.
0: Oh yes, yeah.
2: <laughs> that is just appalling. And I'll make a link to the video to that. Do you want to just go over that just briefly for anyone who hasn't seen it?
0: So David Menzies is a reporter for a conservative media outlet called Rebel News. Uh, Rebel News, I think, is not allowed in the press gallery in Ottawa uh, because they uh, they are critical of the government in power. And uh, David Menzies uh, uh, was at a an event, I think, in Richmond Hill, Ontario, north of Toronto, regarding... Uh, the downing, the crash of a, of a plane uh, over Ukraine four years ago, uh, a number, you know, many Canadians died on that plane. Uh, you know, he found out that Deputy Prime Minister Christa Freeland was at the event. And so she was uh, walking outside of the building and he, he approached her, you know, with his credentials, press credentials to ask her some questions. Right, holding and, a
2: microphone. There's no hold- doubt about it that he's a reporter.
0: Yeah, holding a microphone... She walks toward a, a post uh, on, the, on, the, you know, on the sidewalk, and he walks uh, closer to the wall of the building and not to run into the post. And then an RCMP officer uh, puts their arm straight out so that Menzies, of course, bumps into the arm. Um, and then immediately... Uh, a, bu- a scrum of, of RCMP officers tell him that he's being arrested for assaulting a police officer. It's uh, it's very clear that this is like a it's like a setup. You know whether and the, the
2: police officer grabbed him kind of by the lapels and threw him kind of against the wall. It was way Ooh. rougher than yeah. the alleged little collision where they they weren't looking at each other. But yeah, yeah. it's just appalling. The guy says, yeah. "Police." You assaulted me. You're under arrest, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I mean and the opposite is true. <laughs> like he said, no, you assaulted me.
0: Yeah. 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 So this is uh this is Canada <laughs> in 20 in in 2024 where a police officer can in, intrude, you know, on any citizen who's walking down the street, uh, a reporter in this case, bump into them and then accuse the citizen of bumping into the p- police officer. And arrest them for assaulting a police officer. It's just Orwellian, I guess. Really, is sort of the best way to describe it.
2: Yeah, assault. You know. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God, it's crazy.
0: Yeah. So that's uh, yeah, and it's it's and it's part of a pattern of kind of uh, getting something 180 degrees in, in in the wrong direction and describing it in the, the opposite to what it is. And I watched the CBC panel uh, do uh, backflips to try and explain how. Oh, wasn't
2: that sickening? Uh, And uh, the good thing about that one, they let the comments on there. And everybody sees the 30-second video. Yeah. And then for like 20 minutes, they have a a panel of four people that I never heard of, thank God, because I just stopped watching them. Kind of, you know, try, yeah, like you said, doing backflips. Well, you know, the police have a tough job and this. Are you kidding me? you know all anyone has to do is watch the first little thing and say, what the hell are the, what the hell are the cops doing you know
1: yeah. that's I mean, not he, assault
2: that's yeah. not assault and you walked into him he wasn't even looking at you he's looking at the person he's trying to ask for you know and i urge everyone just to watch it, you know
0: yeah. you'll well, see for yourself the, the cbc is kind of i mean and I mean I I gave money for 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 some years in the in the, some decades past to the friends of the CBC, kind of reluctantly, because I think, why am I giving money to the CBC advocacy group? They should be getting the money. But anyway, but, but those days are done because the CBC now will have people uh, on a panel in the CBC watch this video that anyone can see and then point out, well, maybe this is about sexual harassment. You know, a male reporter uh, being nasty to a, to, to a female politician. I mean, every reporter asking a question there's nothing you know i mean she can say no comment whatever but there, there's nothing unusual about the question he's asking
2: oh not at all and by the way if you watch somebody else has, has taken the video and slowed it down and you can see that uh christia freeland she has an assistant and the assistant is looking up and kind of makes eye contact with this guy and says okay this is it pull it off here and she yeah. kind of walks out of the way yeah. And, you, yeah and once you watch it two or three times you you really catch the little eye contact and the little things that 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 make it you know uh really really what's wrong you know something's wrong yeah. and you know if you didn't lose faith uh in you know in the RCMP or in their horses trampling little old ladies in Ottawa right or yeah. uh, anyway let's leave that alone um there's one other thing I want to get to as well I think that video speaks for itself. So. Yeah. Somebody I hadn't heard of and you brought up to me, a fellow named Josh.
0: Yeah. So we got Josh Alexander. Uh, Josh Alexander uh, attended in the past a, uh, a Catholic school uh, in Renfrew, uh, a smaller city north of Ottawa. He was in, you know, in a, I guess a social studies class perhaps, uh, where – uh, where they're they're having a discussion, the teacher is holding forth that there are seventy-two genders uh, in the human species, and Josh suggests that there actually are two. I guess that was just too much for the teacher, and so he gets expelled. There's also, of course, what's happening in in, in the school environment is that now any 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 biologically born male who identifies as a female, whether or not they still have their male genitalia or not, if they feel that they identify as a female now, they're, they're fine to go into the, quote, women's washroom. And numbers of grade 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12 female, biologically born female students are not comfortable with some of the people who are now appearing in their washrooms, whether they are fellow students or or adult staff, uh, teachers, and janitors, and so on. And so there's a walkout that Josh is involved in, and as a result, he uh, is expelled and will not finish his schooling. His parents are also who were public school teachers, I guess, in the Catholic again, well, in the Catholic school system. Both have lost their jobs and their. I think that they're also they've also lost their pensions. I, I, I find I find this whole story. I mean, you know, like I mean, people can maybe have a discussion about whether or not they think that there are seventy two genders and not two genders. I mean, we've we've held it that that you know you usually ask you know when a when a child is born is it a male or female? But apparently that's that's a really dangerous question to ask these days. And so the, schools are supposed to be a place where students can have a debate but apparently not at least at the Catholic school uh, system in Renfrew, Ontario. And I think too the, the you know the the plight of his parents who've had to sell their home and I mean I just think the whole the whole uh, and the, the decision uh, like they, you know, back in, in just a, um, in December of 2023, the school board has made a decision, he's not coming back into school. And the decision that they've made is is veiled in secrecy, so nobody can know what the reasoning of their decision is. It's just it's just we've made a decision, and you can't ever see how we cobbled together a rationale to say you can never go back to school.
2: The thing that bothers me is that you mentioned the secrecy in which this uh, appeal uh, process happened.
0: Yeah, this of course dovetails into into the the, the case just south of Renfrew of Ottawa police tech detective Helen Gruse. In, uh, I think it's like uh, the winter of 2021-22, uh, she was investigating, she's on the homicide squad that's, that investigates sudden, well, deaths, you know, there's been a death in the family, and there were nine deaths of infants and toddlers in the Ottawa area. And and what happens whenever there's a death, the police have to go and make sure there's no foul play. And and it happened to be that uh, I guess with the nine the nine uh, infants and toddlers that they all have I guess been vaccinated or the mother had been vaccinated. Some some of the of the of the of the of the of the young infants. Uh, Had like they were breastfeeding and then suddenly they got sick and died, which is just very unusual and and never they've never seen that before so I Mean the detectives just trying to figure out like what's going on well all of a sudden the uh, the Ottawa police service you know she she lost her uh, you know she was She suspended and so on and and so there's an internal police review. So this is not before a court an internal police review and she is not allowed she's been denied she cannot bring forth any of the witnesses that she the defense wants to call to to speak on her behalf as well she had her own police officer book uh, you know her notebook which she keeps on hand as a professional uh, during the job uh, where she makes notes of what of what she's doing she's not allowed to see her own notebook about what she was doing in, in January of 2022 regarding any decisions she was making. So it's, so it's kind of a Kafkaesque situation where, where the only people who are allowed to testify are for the prosecution. And she's being described by, by the prosecutor as, uh, I forget if it's like, uh, as if she's like, a, she's a serial rapist and a murderer. This is the, what the prosecutor is calling Helen Gruce for doing her job. Which is to simply ask, you know, what could be the cause of, of the deaths, the sudden deaths of these children? I mean, none of them, none of them, not, in none of these cases was it like sudden infant, like a crib, a crib syndrome situation, which would be, you know, a, a simple matter to, to discern.
2: Well, a lot of shocking stories out of Canada this week.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, think, I think that the old Canada is something I long for, where where, de- where there's transparency, where, where different jurisdictions are are responsible to make transparent what uh what's going on uh, i mean and, the, and the, the good news in all of this is at least the judicial review by justice uh richard mosley uh kind of shows us that we can return to uh, a kind of a rule of law kind of norm that we had before the uh before recent events. And I'll just mention, of course, there's also the ongoing case of the four men arrested, accused in, on, the, on the Alberta, uh, Montana border town of Coots, Alberta, um, who, who remain in custody. Uh, they have not had a trial in over 700 and nearly 20 days. Uh, they have not even been put in a proper jail, just in a remand center. They have no bail, and there's no, no indication that they will ever get bail. And the circular reasoning of the government is, and the Crown is this. Uh, we're not keeping these people in, in custody because, of, uh, because they think they're a flight risk and won't turn up in jail or turn up, uh, uh, present themselves at a trial. Uh, we're not uh, keeping them, um, denying them bail because we think that well, they're... Well, what's a- the trial date? Well, I think there's a scheduled trial date maybe in very late May, uh, early June. Well, I was
2: being facetious. I thought they they didn't have a fixed date. I thought they keep moving it, you know.
0: Well, uh, yeah, I mean, like we can say what a scheduled date is, but based on what's been happening with the Tamara Leach and Chris Barber trial, you know, those dates keep getting moved uh, to even start the trial. So. You can have a scheduled date in late May, early June, but that, that could change. I mean it's you – know, you can have things like the Crown can suddenly dump hundreds of documents that the defense hasn't seen before and then that will throw things off and, and move it further along. So it's, it, it's a bit of a wild card. You know, It's not over till the fat lady sings as yeah. they say.
2: And in a nutshell, uh, I think the charges where they thought they were going to have some kind of armed insurrection against the government, these guys had some weapons on their farm. And uh, then the whole thing was kind of overblown. I, how would you describe it?
0: You you have four people who are charged with conspiracy to commit murder against RCMP officers. Two of them were, were, were elementary school classmates, but all four of them had never met each other before they happened on a street in Coots, Alberta. One of the four, Jerry Morin, was in Vancouver Island to the west of Vancouver on a I think an, an electrical because uh, he's an electrician on a, on a, on a work project. He didn't even arrive in Coots until the 11th of February of 2022. And then he left on the, on the morning of the 13th at 5. AM, uh, you know, but, but, but nonetheless, we're, we're told that these four got together somehow between the 11th and 13th and decided, you know what? There's four of us and there's at least a hundred RCMP officers Let's start a shootout to overthrow the government of Canada. I mean, it's crazy on its face.
2: Okay, well, yeah, uh, it's just uh, a sad state of affairs where you find out these. Uh, it reminds me of the, um, in Victoria, the bomb threat where these two ne'er-do-wells, the, these two people, I think, on welfare were kind of set up. Was the guy's name John Nuttall?
0: Yeah, and somebody, John and, Nuttall. And they were
2: just, you know, some suspicious guy came in and said oh we can get you bombs we can do this we want you to take the ferry and take the stuff over there these uh pressure cookers or whatever and, and then yeah. when they go through the, the footage of in under surveillance they they didn't want to do this they didn't even want to do that how did they get talked no. into the stuff and so they just took the ferry over there and of course they were arrested as you know planting a bomb to destroy the parliament buildings and you wonder how many of these things are false flags where they try to set some people up and set them up as a patsy, and then they get a pat to the back and more funding. It's, oh, we've stopped all these terrorist threats. We need more funding.
0: Yeah, there they, were, there, they were never yeah. there to start with. Eventually, there were 240 RCMP officers involved on working on this investigation to see if these two people were trying to bomb the provincial legislature in Victoria, British Columbia. And it was completely, you know, as the judge in the ruling said, we do not need the RCMP to create terrorist events. We need them to stop them when they're really happening.
2: And after you see a few of these things happen, that's when you lose your trust in the RCMP and the, quote, intelligence agencies, where you go, You're, this, is, this is fabricated. There never was a threat.
0: Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's... Uh...
2: <laughs> and is that your feeling about the, the
0: thing in Coots? I think there, there have been numbers of pretrial motions over the nearly two years since the since the arrest and normally what happens when there are pre-trial motions and 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 proceedings that's supposed to speed up bringing a case to trial but in this case it seems all it's doing is it's slowing down bringing case to trial we're supposed to be these four men have been offered plea deals and they have refused because they want to clear their names so you know there are, you know 3 of the 4 of them are family men with children young children i mean i i have actually been i've talked to two of them and had correspondence from one of the of one of the others and and electrician contractor i mean you know guy drives a, dra- a gravel truck i mean it the, these are working class guys and my concern is that the liberal base as it is constituted today is made up of the laptop class of people that sit behind their, their computers and work from home or work for the government, who are middle to upper middle class, who have a regard for the working class now of, of kind of, it's, it's, it's very detached. And so it, it's, you know, it's easy now, it seems for the government, to describe working class people as scary, and and that's what 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 they've done i mean and i think that the uh there's something called the hategate affair uh which came out in september uh, maybe i'll send you we can have a link to that there was this whole whole story built up that these four guys are being directed by a guy called jeremy mckenzie with a group called diagalon which is trying to create a, a nation of three western provinces and 26 states in the united states which are all supposed to secede willingly <laughs> and become a, a great nation. Uh, well, no, and, and nobody has the wherewithal to do, to do that. Uh, but, uh, and especially since the, uh, the vice president of Diagalon is, is a, a plastic, a plastic goat. I mean, it's, it's just,
2: yeah, you know, there was four of them. So, yeah,
0: yeah. so, so it's, it, 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 the whole story of the Hategate affair boils down to this. The, the government wanted the RCMP to kind of, you know, pin something scary about these four guys and coots to the, to the Jeremy McKenzie and Diagoan. And so they had this RCMP officer, Ashley Chen. And, and then they email to her by her superior. Uh, I think it reads the, sub, the subject heading is, way to go, Ashley. 15-minute assessment. This RCMP officer made a 15-minute assessment to determine whether or not uh, this group diagonal was was scary and going to overturn the government. I mean, it, it, it just I mean, it's maybe this is material for for comedians, but but unfortunately yeah. for the four men who are still in custody, it's it's not funny, and and I think that. Uh, well, you know, I, think, I yeah. could
2: just imagine some four guys sitting in a coffee shop or a bar saying, "Oh, that Trudeau's got to go. Yeah, we should do something. Hey, what if we just took over the, we took over Alberta Parliament and then we we asked Alberta to secede and all that. And after beer, after you know, they just start talking. And then, like you say, they say goodbye and they go back to their normal job. And it's just a lot of. Um, bluster.
0: Yeah. I mean, one of the, one of the, uh, the man, Chris Lysick is, is up on a charge of making threatening statements. And as far as I can figure out, uh, the threatening statement at the point just before he was arrested was like, like all of a sudden, you, you know, like it was peaceful protesting going on. I mean, there are quite a number of days, I think at least eight days, uh, during the protests in Coots, Alberta, uh, there were actually vehicles going back and forth across the borders. So the border wasn't closed the whole time. But anyway, uh, there's a lot of peaceful behavior, uh, entirely peaceful behavior. And then all of a sudden, the RCMP kind of, you know, has all the, all their little helicopters and everything flying around on the 13th of, of February. And Chris Lysick, uh was kind of maybe nervous and sort of points out, uh, you know, those are, you know, those are you know, those are kind of big guns, or those are you know, nice guns. You know, you got there, like kind of just sort of diffuse the situation. But but that that comment is taken as obviously he's trying to threaten the police officer. So I mean, it's not the same as the David Menzies situation, but in a way, it's like if you have uh, somebody, a citizen, say anything or do anything, like walk into a police officer's arm that they put out in front of you you turn it into a threatening thing. You, you, make, you make children sitting in a vehicle in Ottawa with their parents uh, like human shields. You, you reframe it to make it scary. And, and on that basis, then, you will make, make uh, scary charges to scare the general public and think you've got a national emergency.
2: Yeah, and that's the tip of the iceberg, unfortunately. Okay, well, we've covered a few things here. I'm going to make links that you sent me to uh, all these articles should anyone be interested in, uh, in these things, but it, it is troublesome. It's where I think we should pay attention to what's going on. It's interesting to see, uh, Justin Trudeau and, uh, Christian Freeland have to put their backs to the wall to explain, you know, oh, well, I do it again. And I think I was right. And in spite of what, you know, everybody has said, you know, there's been a lot of unpopular, uh, prime ministers over the years, right? And, uh. This is getting a real momentum of people really hate this guy. A few of the other guys, which, you know, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. So we're going to get somebody else in there, and we'll find something to be unhappy about. But he's really doubling down about how, you know, it's really uh, authoritarian. I was right, and I don't care if the court rules against me. I was right. And the whole country is on its step.
0: Yeah. I think that uh, the hope will be that more and more Canadians... Can, dis, can, can detach themselves from the visceral angst and fear and anger and agitation that the mainstream media whipped up in them. You know, they felt like they could you know, break something <laughs> because they're so angry about, about these deplorable citizens that are being depicted in reprehensible ways in Ottawa and at other border points across the country. And if they can step back and say, you know, well, what really happened there? Is there anything else that I should know? Anything else I could read? You know, uh, you know and, and, uh, and if, they, if they can bring themselves to move away from a fixed position of, of certainty about, about the government's take on the whole thing, they'll be mightily surprised in a very sober way about, about where our country is headed.
2: Yeah. And uh, the last little thing in the news is that Jordan Peterson, well-known uh, clinical psychologist—if that's the right term for him—yeah, but he's well-known. He was ordered to take uh, <laughs> training or therapy or whatever for his social media. It's just appalling. It's in, and he's. The headline was that um, he's going to go along with it now, just to like point out the hypocrisy of it. I mean, Jordan Peterson could fill stadiums if he went to speak somewhere. And this board in Ontario, I think, that says uh, he's been unfair to transgender people because of his posts or so, you know, something like that, right?
0: So the tie-in with, with what we've been discussing so far is this. I mean, there were a number of things that Jordan Peterson tweeted out. And people from other, na- other, other nations and other continents, none of them clients of his at all, objected. And here's one of them. When the... Uh, Steve Bell, the interim chief of police for the Ottawa Police Service, uh, announced that uh, that maybe the Children's Aid was going to start uh, uh, taking away children from the protesters in Ottawa. Jordan Peterson tweeted, "This is a bad idea. Take children away from their parents. Why? For how long? Think this over, Canada." That's basically the tweet. And because of a tweet like that, his uh, license to, as a psychiatrist is being suspended. And the the reasoning for the College of Psychiatry in in Ontario again the actual reasoning uh, of their decision is also secret, but now he will have to go through this retraining, uh, so that he uh, who he can he can know how oh, to. Oh, I I'm grinning. Retraining. Yeah, it's retraining. Retraining how to <laughs> how to properly tweet things. You know, maybe Len, you should go through some retraining too. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we should, we should all go through some retraining so that we only tweet and write about things that are properly expressed according to somebody who's appointed in a position that would know better than us.
2: But I don't tweet.
0: Oh, well, <laughs> that's, why, that's why your license hasn't been suspended yet.
2: <laughs> okay, Ray, I read all your articles with interest and I, I'm happy to help promote anything you're working on. So I'll make links to these latest uh, articles and links that some you've wrote, some you haven't, but uh, thanks for taking time to uh, share some news that may not be really mainstream and, and anything else. We'll just keep in touch via email.
0: Okay, great, Len. Thanks so much. Good to be on your show again. Okay,
2: thank you. Okay, good night.